Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wicker. We are joined by Dr. Thomas J. West III, a writer and media expert who has written extensively about the Golden Girls, among other TV and media matters. I'm Lauren. And I'm Sarah. And we are super excited to welcome you, TJ. So Dr. Thomas J. West III, professionally, but TJ for short, just to, to save us <laughs> some, uh, some airtime here. Um, thank you so much for being here. Really excited. And, and thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I've been a fan of your podcast for a while now, and it is just such an honor and a pleasure to be joined with two fellow super fans. Um, I still feel aggrieved that you lost the tri- that you did not win the trivia contest. I feel like yeah. that very is, much appreciated. You know, we could have I, used you. I, I feel you were robbed, uh, <laughs> as it were. So I, you know, I'm still cheering for you in that regard. <laughs> very much appreciated. I'm also a super uh, fan of your podcast, as I, in case that wasn't obvious. <laughs> No, I appreciate that. And we, um, you know, we really feel like, as Lauren mentioned, like written extensively about the Golden Girls. So you have, uh, you know, a quote unquote official scholarly paper called Thank You for Being a Friend, the Politics, History and Fan of the Golden Girls and its feminist message for the coming decade. So if that is not enough to like pull out our heartstrings, I don't know what (laughs) is. But you've also, and we'll get into this later when we chat with you, have so many other really fun uh, works online that basically look at the, the Golden Girls from a feminist and scholarly, uh, you know, again, media studies angle. So we, yeah, we really feel like uh, kindred spirits with you. So really excited that you are fans of us because we're fans of you. Oh, thank you. We so are. <laughs> so I'd love to, um, you know, for, for all of the um, future fans of you out there who are listening to podcasts today, can you just give us a little bit of background about you and just your work as a scholar and how it came to intersect with television, but also the Golden Girls specifically? Absolutely. So uh, I actually did my bachelor's degree, bachelor's degree in English history and classics. And then I was like, what can I do that will draw these together for graduate work? And I decided to look at um, history and film and television. So I did my master's in English, focusing on film studies, and then went on to get my PhD in film uh, studies in particular, looking at the classical Hollywood epic and the way that it articulates and provides an experience of history, situating it in the midst of like atomic anxieties and all the crazy stuff going on in the post-war era. So that was sort of my primary focus. But obviously, as soon as I started doing graduate work, I knew I wanted to write about the Golden Girls to some degree. And I had sort of toyed with the idea as an undergrad, um, but it had never really come to fruition. But I decided to write about it for one of my first classes as a master's student. So that's the, it eventually developed into the article that you guys referenced, which in the words of the infamous Barbara Thorndike, I've grown so much as a writer since then. But so that's sort of where it originated was in that class. But since then, you know, I've continued to muse about and, and reflect on the Golden Girls to think about the layers of complexity. And so as you've alluded to, I've also written about it in uh, my various publications on Medium, looking at the things that I think that sometimes may not go, uh, that go sort of unexamined. So, I, you know, I look at, for example, what's in the St. Olaf story. Um, my partner and I, who are, you know, regularly use the Golden Girls as sort of everyday conversation. We just sort of quote it to each other in the middle of, <laughs> of everything as if we weren't gay enough. Um, <laughs> That's the test. Yes, that, that that was, well, funny, funny story. It's actually key to our relationship because I said Ooh. something about betwixt or I said maybe the thrice or something. It's like, oh, you're going to sit between the thrice of us? <laughs> And I was like, okay, clearly this is the man I am meant to be with. 
Like if he gets, if this is how much she gets me. I was like, okay, I know that this is gonna last. Uh, that, so, that is a magnificent reference to to sort of test someone with, by the way. Oh, I, I like I said, it was, you know, as Dorothy says, it was kismet. Like, you know, <laughs> it was just, you know, it was a magical moment. And so, you know, we talk a lot, him and I, not only as super fans, but as as people who appreciate its complexity and its its sort of thematic richness. And, you know, so I've written about the way that the show engages in a kind of whimsical fancy of Rose's St. Elwes stories, which are obviously played for humor, but I think sort of articulate a sort of nostalgic look at sort of Midwestern America. And I, I've written about the curious case of Philip Petrillo. I think, you know, a lot of people may say that that's a holdover from an earlier era of more homophobic um, stereotypes, but I actually argue that it, he's in perhaps the queerest character of the show as a straight man who dresses in women's clothes. And of course, the wrenching pathos of the end of the episode. Uh, I've also written about recently the moral complexity of Blanche, uh, the way that she is so sexually liberated, but also so conservative. And I have some other stuff that I've been toying with, like looking at Sophia and her way she inserts herself into world history, you know, the, the Yalta Conference or, um, <laughs> you know, rendezvous with Sophia. Golda Meir. Yes, yes, Golda Meir, yes. Um, and her yeah. husband, Oscar Meyer. <laughs> Exactly. Um, that's, a, that's an amazing angle, by the way, just to just, I mean, all of them are, but like to think about compiling sort of those Sophia moments and what it means to have, um, you know, her big head, basically, yes. <laughs> to, to talk about how she was uh, present for all those moments. That's pretty, a pretty interesting exploration. Yeah, and there for a while I was writing a series of blog posts that were like, what you all are doing. I was just sort of going through episode by episode, but that takes a long time to write. And so I ended up not doing it as consistently as I'd like. I think I made it through season two and then I had to, I shifted to other projects. So I, I was sort of shifting more toward longer form thematic essays rather than just episode by episode analysis, which I think that works for a podcast. It's not always so great for a blog when you have to keep trying to write other things. <laughs> So. <laughs> but I, I like um, one of the best parts about going episode by episode on our podcast and trying to explore these themes is that it builds on each other. So mm -hmm. like we are watching the Golden Girls, yes, for like the bazillionth time, each of us, but we, we haven't, one, we haven't really done it probably in order ever in mm -hmm. that regard, but two, not through this lens, not through the right. sort of scholarship lens. So um, it's really fun to like have those those themes would be like, wait, 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 oh my gosh, that was like way last season, but this is kind of of the same ilk. So I love, you know, the essay explorations that you're doing because it's, it, you know, to your point, it's easier a little bit to like not have to focus on mm -hmm. huge amounts of details for each episode and to just sort of pick the elements that connect. Well, sure. And I mean, I, one of the things I, I love about what you all are doing is that as a scholar, I appreciate it's close reading. Like you're really sort of drilling down into the specificity of each episode. What makes the, like I, one, some of the best things I think you guys do is what makes the comedy work. Cause I think that's something people assume but I'm very fascinated by what makes us laugh and why it makes us laugh. And so I think that's one of the things that I've really emerged with a greater understanding listening to you all is what exactly is it that is the mechanical part of comedy which I think is again it's a, it's a skill it and I, it's a valuable one to sort of understand that That's so kind um speaking of comedy let's talk about Ronald Reagan um so what I love so much about you know these the medium pieces that you write and also this sort of like main paper that uh we're talking about is um you know the Golden Girls 
address a lot of political issues. And I think, you know, like an episode like 72 hours is sort of the pinnacle of that quote unquote, very special subject matter. Mm -hmm. But what I like so much about what you, you, the last time we talked, we spoke about this as well, and it's in the paper, but there's a lot more sort of like subtle political plot points mm -hmm. throughout the show. Um, and it addressed a lot of stuff that, you know, like you can, I'm watching it now, you know, there's some sort of like political discourse going on behind the scenes, but it's not as in your face as a 72 hours. Um, I'm mm -hmm. thinking specifically of like the social services cuts and nursing home cuts that mm -hmm. the Reagan administration, you know, really championed. And that comes up at least twice in the series that I can think of. Um, and, you know, that's something that it's not a, a very special episode. It's, you know, a major or a minor plot point sometimes. Um, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, what was the risk involved with doing that sort of stuff? And if, the show or if TV as a whole sort of suffered a backlash from kind of taking these, uh, from making politics a, a sort of regular thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I'm a historicist, like, and so, and, you know, for our listeners who may not sort of be tuned into what academia is doing, historicists traditionally situate texts, both film and television and books in the milieu that they emerge from. So I, I always see things even relatively recent things as part of a, a broader uh, cultural conversation that's going on. And that's true of the Golden Girls as well. And I think that there is certainly a risk in the Golden Girls of backlash. And one of the things that ignited my interest in sort of a scholarly defense of the Golden Girls was there's a throwaway line in Susan Faludi's book, Backlash, which is a sort of chronicling of the Reagan years and the way in which it's a hugely conservative era, not just in terms of politics, but in culture, you see the sort of female-centric comedies of the 70s sort of swept away in terms of, you know, more traditional family-oriented films like, well, anything, all the, all the numerous comedies of that age that had the word family in the title. Um, <laughs> Very <it's>, literal. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like it's, you know, there's not a lot of ambiguity, but there's definitely a, re, a retrenchment of sort of patriarchal politics in one form or another. And she makes this line, uh, I forget it, it's, it's in the article I wrote, but she says something to the effect that except for like some exceptions like the Golden Girls, you know, uh, who stayed in the home and were largely like basically anodyne, she makes the point, like sort of like toothless to, he'll pardon the, the pun. And I, I thought at the time I was like, that can't, that is not true. That's a gross misreading of the, of the edginess of this show, which certainly a lot of it is subtle as you say, but I think a lot of it is in your face. Um, sometimes some uh strikingly so uh you know certainly in the the, the letters to gorbachev essay or the as episode where you know it really points out the folly of that muscular foreign policy uh and and rose's sort of simple solution is moving precisely because it seems so innocent and it's an interesting counterpoint to the sort of belligerence of the reagan era and i think the the, the commentary comes is even more pointed when we move to the bush era you know, you have the, uh, once she tells Dreyfus to find a viable Democrat for president or, you know, welcome to the Bush era, me, 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 or Dorothy's sort of really powerful critiques of Bush. And I think that, you know, as Bush is sort of continuator of Reagan era politics, it's a, it's a very explicit sort of rejoinder to what Bush and Reagan are articulating. And I think that you, there is a risk and was a risk in that. But the, the genius of the Golden Girls is that it manages to do all that while still being hugely entertaining. And I think that's the brilliance of the Golden Girls is it's one of those 
shows that remembers that the primary function of television or film or books that are fiction and sort of generic is entertainment. But the ones that are truly brilliant are the ones that are both hugely entertaining and yet really incisive in their commentary. And so I think that that's sort of the, the balance that the Golden Girls strikes in a way that I don't think is very common. And it's striking to compare it to like Designing Women, which gets a lot more scholarly love um, until recently. Because Designing Women is much more, uh, I don't want to say pedantic, but it definitely sometimes beats you over the head with the politics. Um, not to say that I don't love Designing Women, but I don't think it's quite as, it's not as subtle or as compl complex in its way of political uh, politicizing as I think the Golden Girls is. Yeah, now how, so how much do you think, because the first thing when you said Reagan versus Bush era on the Golden Girls, in my mind, it was because it was later seasons, right? Mm -hmm. And so these women who started off incredibly powerful because part of the, you know, the conceit of the show was that we have these three absolute powerful, you know, actresses that are well-known in Hollywood already, you know, mm -hmm. there's like three superstars plus the newcomer of Estelle Getty. But like, as time goes on, as seasons go on, they actually even get more powerful, yep. staying high in the ratings and pulling all of these, you know, wonderful showstoppers for NBC. So to, to my mind, it's like, you could almost get more outspoken about Bush just because the show went on. Sure, exactly. Um, and, and to me, that's the major difference. Well, I'm, there are many major differences, but between Designing Women and the Golden Girls of just like, there was just the three actresses in particular mm -hmm. of the weight that they carried in a way, and especially with Betty White specifically being who she was. And, you know, she, she was not exactly playing, you know, against type or for type, but she was still Betty White and like this, like America sweetheart type of thing. So her in particular, but even for all the other characters really brought that more of the subtlety to even explicit lines mm -hmm. that you really believed that a character like Rose or a character like Blanche who'd be challenged by some of these like, you know, more like socially liberal ideas that might sort of come across their plate that they were working through it, which I yep. never, again, I also love designing women, but I never really saw that. It was like you said, it was, they were just like delivering a line like to the audience. And there mm -hmm. was less of, for me at least, less of the, the sort of seeing the inner processing of characters on the screen. Mm -hmm. which is also just something we don't even do in our culture anyway, yep. <laughs> like process things well anymore. So that was like that real magic of the, of, of at least the political style commentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of, of two incidents in particular that sort of, I think, emblematize what you're talking about. And it's Rose when she's talking to Jean and it's Blanche when she's talking to Clayton after he says he's going to yeah. get married to Doug. So, you know, Rose says, I like to think that if I were like you, I would feel honored that you would feel that way about me. And obviously I think to a 21st century perspective where we're all, I think much more, well, a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us are much more progressive. That may read a little bit hackneyed or old fashioned or even sort of conservative, but I do think that it is a useful way of thinking, of showing someone working through the awkwardness of having someone fall in love with you, if, whether you're straight or gay, uh, but certainly it's, you know, an additional, um, layer of complexity when it has to do with a queer character. And I mean, the fact that Rose comes from, you know, middle of nowhere, Minnesota. So, you know, she grew up in the, in the depression. Like, I think that, you know, for her to have such a, a gen, it's a, to me, it reads as a very generous and warm approach 
instead of just revulsion. And I think that that is, to my mind, it's always one of my favorite lines in the, in the whole show. I just love that particular moment. And then Blanche says, you know, I can't say that I understand what you're doing, but I'm trying to honor your decision to do it. And again, I know that reads as conditional acceptance and that's very hard for a lot of people to accept, but I mean, in the 21st century. But to me, again, it seems to be coming from a place of generosity because Blanche does love her brother and she wants him to be happy and she wants to be part of his life. And, you know, I think that's pretty progressive. And I think that it's, I mean, we it would feel inauthentic if Blanche were to just have a sudden change of heart because it would be antithetical to who she is as a character. But I think the fact that it shows her having that, that sort of moment of self-realization and working through that is still something that I think would echo with a lot of people, particularly people in the Bible Belt today. And I mean, I say that as someone who comes from Appalachia, so not 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 as classy as Georgia, but um, still not that different in some ways. And you know, my mom, for example, just said to me the other day, she's like, "You are who you are," and you know, that's all there is to it. So, you know, I I still see that as again as one of those really powerful moments that's delivered so subtly and well. Yeah, yeah, and I think what you said about it being inauthentic, if Blanche were to all of a sudden just accept, you know, like flat out unconditionally support the queer movement, you know, the, the, the gay liberation movement at that time. And same with Rose and, and it comes from sort of different places, but I think you're right about both of those two interactions actually being progressive for the characters considering where they've come from and their background. So I think to give, you know, to sort of loop back to what you were saying earlier, I think that is, a generous and very accurate read of those conversations. And it is easy to, to sort of hold both of those in contempt now as, as you know, 2021, um, but they, they really are. And I think they both come from very good places. Um, so I wanna switch gears just a, a little bit now because you also talk about um, the syndication of the mm -hmm. Golden Girls. And that I think also is what makes the show such a powerhouse because it's literally always been on TV. Like my entire life it's been on, you know, and I was born about midway into the series. And so like, you know, I've never lived a life thankfully where I couldn't find the Golden Girls on TV. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanna talk about the the different places that it, it was on because, you know, it was, um, originally on network TV, obviously, and then it aired on quote unquote women's network. So mm -hmm. it was on Lifetime pretty, you know, famously. Um, and then it was Television on for women. Yes. And yep. then it was on Lifetime. women's entertainment, yeah. literally. <laughs> um, and then it moved to the Hallmark channel, which is like, you know, billed as this like family friendly entertainment. Um, and then I think at the same time it was also on Logo, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a, a queer centric channel. And so how come this show can be in all of those spaces? And what is different about the presentation in all of those spaces? Yeah, so to take the last question first, I think that the fact that it is so malleable and so um, adaptable to where it can be broadcast is a testament to A, how well it's written. I mean, Susan Harris is truly one of the geniuses of television. Uh, I don't think that she gets enough credit. I think she really should. Someone should write a book about her work. I mean, if you've ever seen um, Soap, you know, she's just, she has a, an ability to really create and write very good television. And so I think that's part of it. And the second part of it is I think it's also just the nature of network TV of that age when it was really still geared toward the maximum appeal. Like it's not like today where the TV landscape is so fragmented. I mean, in the eighties, it's still 
with some exceptions, you know, the, the network era, like we're still in the age of network television. And so, you know, TV shows had to appeal to everyone. And so I think that that's something that, that is exploitable in the sort of age of fragmented networks that, some, that comes in, you know, to be in the 90s and the 2000s. And so, as you rightly point out, like, I think that it becomes so key to Lifetime's brand identity, like for a long time, I think, that, I mean, certainly people watched the original shows on Lifetime, I, Army Wise was one, I, if I were correct correctly, and. <laughs> oh yeah, this is all like my, after going to bed at like 10 yeah. p.m. when I was in high school, I just and like stayed up till 2 a.m. watching Lifetime originals. <laughs> what's the woman with the woman from Home Improvement? She was in a Lifetime show as well, but I can't remember her. Was it was she an army? Like it's not important, but the, the point of it is, is that let you know the Golden Girls, you know, is sort of a, a brand anchor for a lifetime through much of the '90s, um, as a signifier of its sort of of its orientation toward women. And then, as you say, like as you alluded to, it's after Lifetime loses the rights in 2007, if I recall correctly. Um, I mean, it was earth shattering for me because I, you know, like I, like all of you, I, you know, I grew up, I was born in 84, so a year before the show premiered. I can remember vaguely watching it as a child and then really diving in in, in high school. But, you know, and post 2007, it, you know, it leaves Lifetime and then there's a brief cessation of it being on network and then it goes off to, it goes off to Hallmark, to WE, which I don't even know if that exists anymore. I lose track. And then, to, as you say, to Logo, and now you can now it's on Hulu, which adds a whole new layer of complexity and engagement. And I think that its sort of explosion onto Hulu, which was a huge uh, deal when it was announced, uh, really opens it up to a whole new series of fandom. Like I have witnessed in my lifetime the like the sort of growth of Golden Girls fandom. I'm sure you two can remember even the days back before we had DVDs. I was like. Oh my God, Lena! They gotta release the Golden Girls on DVD, yes. but but now it's available at the finger at our fingertips, except of course for um, the episode with Michael and Lorraine, which we could talk about that if you want. But because I have some very strong thoughts <laughs> about that, but you know, it's it's it um it's sorry, its availability on streaming really sort of helps to make it mainstreamed again, like it becomes this phenomenon all over again, and thankfully. On Hulu, they're unedited, unlike we're on Hallmark and sometimes on Lifetime, like there's trim, trim, trim to get those commercials oh, in and can really damage how you like, well, Hallmark cuts out all the bad, the, you know, the naughty parts, obviously, cuss words and such. But it's not just that, like their edits make no sense. They insert commercial breaks that have, I can't, I do not understand the logic because they just break in in the middle of a scene. Sometimes they'll, they'll change an entire scene so that it makes no, like a completely different sense, like Rose's infamous confrontation with Holly becomes Rose looks like an asshole because they cut out the part. They cut where, out everything. It's, yeah. yeah, the cutting is terrible. Until she's like, goodbye, Holly. And then she looks like the <laughs> asshole, even though Holly has admitted that she exactly. has done very specifically to get back at Rose for being. That's stupid. a good example. There's also um, the actor where like Sophia just like walks in as a pirate and there's no context for why she's dressed as a pirate because they cut the whole beginning scene. <laughs> it's you guys, I mean, this is like plot specific stuff. How could they cut out Captain Jack's seafood shanty? I mean, I'm honestly. I'm telling you. <laughs> Yo-ho! She was off to discover the Straits of Magellan. I mean, come on. Vasco da Gama. <laughs> I'm doing the Pirates of Penzance across town. Um, that, is, I, that is one of my, I think I wrote a thing about this. That is why I think it is the funniest episode of the entire show. Like it is just one of the most hilariously written 
Golden Girls this, episodes. This is my daughter, Dorothy. She's an English teacher. That's my absolute favorite line the whole time. Oh, have <laughs> you ever been a fruit before? Well, no, but having been in the musical theater for 30 years, I've had my fair share of offers. Wow. If we ever do a radio yeah, reenactment, you are definitely playing Patrick Vaughn. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think, I mean, Lauren and I can so relate to the, you know, and we talk about all the time, like the Golden Girls is so hot right now. And it's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. I feel like a younger me, having been obsessed about bands or, you know, shows or movies or other sort of pop culture items would have been like, essentially jealous, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that like, well, I, I, I loved it before it was cool, you know, all the, oh, exactly. that kind of stuff, but it's, it's so interesting now. And so fun that when I tell people that I have a golden girls podcast, hi, I have a, a podcast about an almost 40 year old television show <laughs> and people freak out no matter if it's like they saw it one time or they just have fond memories and haven't watched it in 30 years and i'm sometimes even the person to inform them that it's on hulu and they like glow it's it's so wonderful and you talk about in the paper too of just the readings of you know sort of like our podcast and what you're doing on medium etc but like just the online um fandom and the communities that that spring up around the show having been in so many different sort of cultural landscapes that it provides just umpteenth different types of readings and you're always discovering something new oh my god if i had if i i said you know as i was reading rereading the paper for this i haven't looked at it like 10 years since i wrote it which is how old i am but you know i was struck i was i was thinking to myself i was like man i really wish i could have written this paper now when the fandom is so much more robust and sort of online obvious than it is now. Like that paper was hard to write because it was just hard to find a lot of online, surprisingly enough, fandom in 2009. Like it just, I mean, Twitter was in its infancy back then. You know, obviously the internet was not, but there wasn't, the Golden Girls was not the phenomenon that it is today. Still, even like internet, you know, sort of like web 2.0 was only really just taking off. I mean, the iPhone only came out in 2007, I think. Yeah, they're about so, to. Yeah, it's like, that was still kind of young. I know, I was like, oh, if only these podcasts and Twitter had existed, had, had you know, the Twitter Golden Girls fandom had existed, it would have made my paper so much easier, that part of my paper so much easier to write. Just because, as I said, the fandom has just exploded as the show has become much more prominent because of its streaming and because of its other sort of availability. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if you've read uh, Wendy Burns Ardolino book, uh, uh, Wendy Burns Ardolino's book about female foursomes and their fans, um, which obviously talks about Golden Girls and Designing right. Women, but also Hot in Cleveland, also Girlfriends, also, you know, Living Single. <clears throat> so, you know, like she actually did a, a sort of a scientific exploration of fan comments and mostly mm. in like discussion forums. So talk about old internet. Oh, um, yeah. And I just, it's kind of amazing, like how many different places she would have to visit today, you know, Twitter and Reddit and closed Facebook communities and separate fan sites and podcast comments, you know, all these different uh, areas. Yep. I was just going to say about the, I am trying to like organize my thoughts about the fandom because I don't, I don't know like what happened to make, it's sort of like a perfect storm because I also think that, I don't know if it was just because I was like an insecure, like teenager or like young adult or whatever, but I feel like there was also a time where liking the Golden Girls wasn't cool. Like it wasn't, I don't know that I, you know, I didn't get like ostracized or made fun of or anything for it but I didn't have anybody who liked it and it was kind of like a 
like a joke a little bit. And now I feel like the past, I don't, recent, I would say like three, four years, it's like a cool niche thing, you know? And, and like everybody, even if they haven't watched it, everybody is in favor of it. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like that is relatively recent. And I'm not sure if that's because of the streaming availability or like the, you know, Target Pride merchandise or just like an overall queering of mainstream culture or just like the fan communities or what, but like, I do feel like it's more respected in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, you know, I'm hugely in favor of that. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think that it's all of the above is what I think. And it's also striking that when I started writing this paper, like I said, 10 years ago, there was a dearth of scholarship on this show. I mean, it's as you, if you look at the publications that like you guys have listed on your website, uh, yeah, they're relatively recent. They're on like the past 10 years. Like there's been, that's really, the, the there's a sort of growth in all areas of engagement with this show, which given that it went off the air 30 years next, next year in 2022, you know, that's, an incredible thing and it's and I, again i think that the, the part of what makes it so powerful as a show and so i think relevant to today is so well so little has changed in 40 and almost 40 years which is depressing but it's also just one of those shows that is exquisitely crafted in such a way that i think it has a timeless and eternally present quality to it that not a lot of shows from that age or sorry that era have i mean certainly some of the jokes don't land because we don't get the, you know the the context which i know there's that cultural context book coming out from yeah yeah which i can't i'm blanking on his name so which i i, I fervently apologize i should know it he's from west virginia too so i know I, exactly matt browning yes that's it another lovely gay boy from west virginia <laughs> so we, we like, found them all <laughs> so uh we're a fabulous bunch but um uh, you know, I think that that's part of what makes the show still feel so powerful today. And I mean, even just like anything as simple as, you know, when Sophia says to Blanche, like why gay people want to get married, still feels radical because we're still, you know, we're only, what is this, uh, what, five years, five, six years past Obergefell? Like, you know, it hasn't been that long. And so I think that that's part of the reason it still feels so re re relevant today. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, that I was just going to comment on the, the fact that you can have a show that makes such dated references in a way and still have it feel fresh. It's like, that's some sort of magic that really Paris is, yeah. and the writers were able to do. Yeah. Also, I just want to comment on the fact that like, Lauren, did you, did you like have a collection of kick me signs because you were a golden girls fan, like out and proud <laughs> when you were. No, but like I, I honestly do remember like if my older cousins or like somebody I thought was cool was coming over, I would turn it off real quick. Like I was watching some, you know, like normal, I don't know what other kids are watching, but I was watching the Golden Girls. I was like, oh no, this isn't cool. I'm going to put on like, I don't know, the WB. Friends. I'm watching Buffy, which I did oh, get right. into later for the record. But like I did, you know, I just, I just feel like it wasn't, um, I feel like it wasn't a cool part of my personality. And now it's like the only cool part of my personality. Yep. And so that is quite... <laughs> Well, I think it also, it had more of the reputation of the older women show, um, where it was the grandma's show, partially because a lot of us, myself included, watched it with our grandmothers at the yeah. time. And, you know, that, that was obviously, you know, one, the, the, the surface layer of, of what the show was all about. And now, 
we're older and everybody else is older and they realize like how many layers the show actually has. Yep, the intergenerational fandom was one of the things that stood out to me the most when I when I did that yeah. paper was just how much it was clearly a bonding uh, experience for younger people with their older generations. Yeah, and it's, I mean, again, the, the, the idea of the show is that second chance that your, your life isn't pre-written and if it ends abruptly because of a marriage or a divorce ending, uh, you know, you know, a, a death of a spouse, etc. That you can you can rebuild your life however you want. You can move to a new town. You can live yep. with your friends. You can, you can move to Miami like everybody else. Exactly, exactly. Um, so also, you know, again, part of the the show's magic, and you talk about this a lot in your paper too, is the the feminist voice, right? And you we mentioned, you know, the sort of complexity of Blanche Devereaux as well, where she's very um, sexually liberated, but has some conservative ideas and, you know, Rose throughout the series has a lot of just sort of discovering feminist moments, even though mm -hmm. she would never sort of label them as such. And, you know, Sophia is a pioneer of, of just women in general, uh, whether or not she knew Golda Meir and Pablo Picasso, but obviously Dorothy is like the, the quote unquote straight man in terms of like keeping everybody on a level head, but she's mm -hmm. also that feminist voice. So, you talk a little bit too about like how obviously Golden Palace was the Golden Girls minus Dorothy and it just went flat for a zillion other reasons, but particularly because of the lack of the feminist voice. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, and I've only seen the Golden Palace once and that was when it came, and well, that's not entirely true. I watched a few episodes when it first came out uh, way back in the, the, in the dark ages. Um, but I remember watching it uh, let's see, I just graduated college, so it was 2007. And I think you're right. I think that Dorothy not being there really takes away that sort of potent feminist voice. And I don't think you can replace it with Cheech Marin and Don Cheadle, whom, both of whom are extraordinarily talented. Exactly. But are woefully wrong for this show. I, I, I don't understand what was happening. <laughs> and Oscar is a total misfire, but they had, I guess they figured they needed a kid because every show in the 90s had, had a kid. But I was just like, I do not need to see. Nobody needs kid. that kid. <laughs> and then aside from everything else, I think that what else makes the Golden Pass not work is it's just depressing. Like the, the genius of the Golden Girls is that it follows up tragedy with or pathos with humor. Like even like Ebb Tide's Revenge where Phil dies, arguably one of the saddest episodes, is both very funny but also very poignant like you know it mingles those moments where Dor where where Sophia you know has that wrenching you know her wrenching ending with Rose's inane story about you know slow Ingmar <laughs> with his bird <laughs> imitations but you, the, the the unfortunate thing about Golden Palace is that that's missing and one of the, I mean I, and I will never forgive the show for breaking up Miles and Rose like that to me is the greatest betrayal that I've ever seen in television. Like I, I, it scarred me for life. Like I, I watched it and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like Miles is not only gonna have an affair with someone, he's going to leave Rose for this person. And then Rose has, to, I was like, this is, this is not working. None of this is working. Like and there's I, the reason I've never watched the damn show. Cause I knew <laughs> it would ruin my head cannon of these lovely ladies and their, you know, boyfriends at all. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll tell you that uh, a lot of people turned on Miles when we when we put out that um, the list of like villains, you know, we got a fair amount of feedback from people who was like, well, where's Miles? He cheated on Rose. And we were like, well, nothing in the Golden Palace is eligible for consideration. Right. Um, but yeah, like I 
always liked Miles, and I yeah, I he's a great like that boyfriend. story. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, but, but minus the witness protection bit, but right. I mean, and yeah, Nicholas <laughs> Carbone. A little questionable. He's so um, rude to the Amish who have those orders. Yeah, what about the plank makers? <laughs> His beard is also unconvincing because he doesn't shave his mustache, but anyway. <laughs> Silly rabbi, tricks over kids. Um, like Cesar Romero. But yeah, but I, you know, I like Miles and I maintain my relationship feeling good about their relationship. Um, and I feel like people who really buy into the Golden Palace have completely turned on him. They, you know, they consider Miles a villain, which is not right. Yep, it isn't. And I, and I, I mean, that was, to me, it was a betrayal of this, not just of the couple, but of the characters. And I think that that's a problem. And I don't think it's one, I, I think, I understand the impulse of why they created Golden Palace, but it, it, magic in a bottle by its nature can't be replicated. And I just think that that's true with the Golden Girls. Like even the episode where Dorothy comes back is depressing. The last thing you see is her gazing longingly at the lobby and then she leaves and she recognizes she's extraneous and it's like my god like you brought me arthur back just to say oh by the way we don't need you anymore like i i i was like everything about this show is depressing and i hate it and so i you know even if it became available on dvd i'm not sure i would buy it just because i just think it betrays the spirit of joy that is so much a part of the golden girls and to this day i'm just like i don't get what they were. I, well i do actually it was moving into the 90s and that's a very difficult thing to do with an 80s format. Yeah, and I think uh, it's funny because, you know, B. Arthur once danced to the Urkel on stage with uh, Jaleel White, and that was like less embarrassing than Golden Palace. Yeah, it's an embarrassing- Speaking of the 90s. It's an embarrassing misfire, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, we can all agree about that. Nobody's, nobody's a Golden Palace super fan. Um, <laughs> I want to loop back to something uh, that you mentioned in the intro, um, but it's a one of your meeting medium pieces, and it's the curious case of Philip Petrillo because I think Phil is so interesting, and I honestly didn't ever think about him in the sort of complex way that you present. And and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get to episodes, you know, centered on him, and certainly um, the one centered on his death uh, for Enough Wicker, but. You know, you mentioned that he's the queerest character on the show. And I think part of the sort of ambiguity surrounding, like, is he, you know, he, just, he all we really know about him is that he likes to wear women's clothes, which I think now, you know, we have much more as a society, we're more wholly educated on what that could or mm -hmm. doesn't have to mean. Right. Um, but, you know, at, at the time, it's kind of presented as like a joke and like sort of like almost like a caricature. But I want to, you know, just, kind of talk about him and and what you bring up in the medium piece and uh you know like what what's the deal with phil sure and i mean i thought i had been thinking about that for a while and that's probably one of the things i'm proudest of is that article um because you know i think that the traditional reading of phil would be that he's obviously for comic relief because there's always comedy associated with women with sorry with men dressing up as women not drag queens but men and women's clothing which there's are there's are two different phenomena culturally speaking. And so I think it's important to note that that's part of what makes him so queer is that he's a, he's clearly straight. Like there's a few illusions that he liked gladiator movies and oh, your brother Phil's gay. But I think that for the most part, his heterosexuality is not in question. Like he clearly has a strong relationship with Big Sally slash Angela. They have multiple kids. Like not that all of that would preclude him being gay, but I think that there's no real indication that he is anything other than a straight man who happens to enjoy 
wearing women's clothing. And, and I think when, when, when Angela slash Big Sally does come on screen, the writers seem to be making a point as to, you know, how good of a husband he is and how much they have a connection. And there's even the other men at the poker, the poker game, like right. yeah, so, you know, veiled shapely good. creatures just huddling together to get a little warmth, you know? So I think that that's, and the reason it's queer, I would argue, is because Phil refuses to obey any of the conventions of the, the binaries of sexuality and gender. Um, and so I think at the reason, the most like closest analog I could find would be like Eddie Izzard before they came out or she came out as sort of trans. Like her identity yeah. when she first started her comedy routine was that she's a straight man who likes wearing women's clothing. Or I he, they came, she came up with many different ways to articulate the complexity of her gender position. And so that's the closest thing I can think of to what Phil is doing. And even that's not quite accurate, but I'm just thinking in terms of the way that we think about the complexities and the the what do I want to say, the sort of chaos of gender. And I think that's one of the things that makes Phil so exciting as a character. And of course, the fact that he's unseen helps us as well, since we don't, we can't pin him to a body. And so there's a sort of, a sort of pleasurable perversity. And I don't use perversity in a, like a pejorative sense. I mean, and I, sorry about all the P's, but um, <laughs> I just think that he's a character who's, who challenges us to really rethink how we conceptualize gender and sexuality. And I, you know, it, I think there's echoes of him and Stevie uh, who in season seven dresses up in women's clothing and obviously is meant to be funny, but I think there's also something slightly liberating because like, I've never, you know, I finally like myself and it's obviously they're, you know, they're using that traditional like you know man in a dress thing but I think there's some humanity in that moment too uh but I think Phil is certainly the the, the more uh complete articulation of that idea yeah and actually I hadn't thought about this until today when I was thinking about Phil but neither Phil nor Dorothy sort of do gender in the quote-unquote right way and that's interesting to think about because Sophia you know has uh, she has some rigidity to her for sure um but she's not as like, she's not as rigid around, you know, issues of um, homosexuality or whatever it is, you know, like we see her with Jean and there's like, there's jokes about like, oh, Dorothy, like stick with what you know, <laughs> you know, like there's, right. there's stuff like that, but it doesn't, it's not, you don't get the impression, I guess, that she would be so um, offended or put off or whatever if one of her kids was not straight and not didn't present gender in the in the proper way because she has two kids who don't and mm -hmm. that I think is also um kind of like just a nod to how sort of in the know some of these writers were ab about the intricacies of queer culture even at the time you know like it wasn't as accessible as it is now but I think that you can tell I mean I can tell as a queer person when I watch this show when you know like there's kind of like an inside joke almost mm -hmm. absolutely yeah, and I, you know, I love that part with, as I said, at the end of Eptide's Revenge, where Sophia really admits that she did have trouble with Phil's gender identity. And I think that that's wrenching because it's, and it's also a warning, like it's a warning to people that when you turn away your queer children, whether they're men, straight men who dress as women or, you know, or gay or lesbian or trans or whatever, there'll come a day when you deeply, deeply regret that. And I think that that's what makes that moment so powerful is because she realizes that in blaming herself for something that wasn't a fault to begin with, she lo you know she lost all the years that she could have spent with him. And so I think that that's one of those really powerful moments. The show is warning straight parents not to turn their back on their queer children or they will regret it someday.
yeah i mean there's oh my gosh there's so many powerful moments like yeah. that in the show it's it's really it's yeah it's fascinating and i i just i am fascinated by that philip essay specifically just because it again going back to what we were talking about of like network television right yeah the audience is america and yes you don't see the character but to your point you can really impose so many other thoughts of your own onto that character and in some ways we do see that the gay straight binary even when we have gay characters such as gene such as clayton you know or even just like the stereotypical caterer um you know that that shows up uh but out rambo uh you you have these like the concepts of like who they're supposed to be mm-hmm. whereas phil is like wait you're in like two different directions if i'm trying to put you into a binary box and it yep. is um again speaking as you know miss joe america out there of trying right. to figure things out and I even think, and I might make a controversial point here, but I even think the Gil Kessler episode is surprisingly untransphobic. Like, I would have expected a show from the 80s to be much more caustic in its approach. But, it, I mean, the women don't seem particularly, like, horrified that Gil is a, tra- is, a, is a trans man. They're just like, okay. I mean, really, it's just about the mechanics of it. Like it's, I mean, there's not a sense of horror that, you know, right. would have been in like, uh, I don't know, Dress to Kill or something like that. Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, certainly it's funny and I know that it can feel a little bit tone deaf t- from 2021, but I actually argue that for the time, that's pretty progressive. Like, and I mean, Sophia's like, you know, I, something about him doesn't strike me right, but it's not his transness that's the issue. It's the fact that he's Italian, Italian and he's hiding it that she finds distressing. Right, so, and the, the humor at the end for that punchline is actually Sophia being like i was right you know like she like that is more of like the uplifting Mm -hmm. laughter at that exact moment as opposed to something where it's like well i going back to you know blanche's boyfriend you know it just when you see him in a dress it's just the gag in and of itself right so fascinating so you uh you offered earlier to talk about mixed blessings so i i would love to hear your i did um, and I was upset when they removed it because I think it was an overreaction to what is actually, like, I think they're missing the point of the joke. And I think that they're actually taking down an episode that I think is sort of po- like pushing the women to analyze their own positions about race. And so they're not in blackface. They have mud on their faces because they're doing a beauty regimen, which is a key part of the context of the whole show. So I don't, I mean, again, I think it was just corporate overreaction, but more to the point, there was an essay in Vulture, you may have read it, like the real mud on the Golden Girls faces, which I don't know if, if the author is listening, but Dr. I think Stephen Thrasher. It's one of the most dishonest, disingenuous readings of the Golden Girls I have ever read, and I'm not afraid to say that. I was actually going to write a, I wrote an essay, I haven't published it yet, about it, because I think it misreads everything. I think it misreads Dorothy's supposed date rape by uh, Stan. I think it misreads the Mario Lopez because she doesn't out him as an undocumented immigrant purposefully. She does it by accident. I mean, that could go on. I won't beat up on that essay, but I just think that by excising this episode that is not actually problematic in the way that people say it is, I think is robbing people of what is actually a rather progressive approach to race. And if they were going to take one about one about race, they could have had more grounds to take out the one with. Um, Oh, I'm blanking on her name. The maid. Um, oh, Marguerite. Yeah, Marguerite. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, even that one, I, I, as I put it out on Twitter, 
is also poking, like forcing the women to acknowledge their own racial assumptions. Like she's bad as a maid because she's going to be a lawyer. <laughs> so I just think that when corporations like Hulu overreact and pull things from, from circulation, I think that it can sometimes be more harmful than good. And in this case, I think it ignited a conversation about the Golden Girls that ended up being disingenuous in a way that I felt very defensive about. And not just because I like the show, but I also just feel like it's a gross misreading of the show's politics that I don't think does the reader or the writer or the show any favors. <laughs> well, and this ties back perfectly to our conversation before of where it was more of a positive note of like, oh, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have these internet you know, communities and fandom and sort of the internet writ large uh, when the Golden Girls was on or at least earlier. But part of what really sucks about the internet and sort of cultural ratings now is the quote unquote hot take or headline mm. articles. And, you know, it, it, even I'm even thinking of when um, they did a fundraiser, you know, the, the four famous black actresses did a fundraiser mm, yes, for, yes, yes. Re, you know, it, it was like the headlines pitched it as like Golden Girls reboot that was black. And you're like, they're literally reading an episode one time, like chill right. out everybody. <laughs> so it's like that the, that pull and then everybody else's you know had to, everybody had to cover it and everybody had to cover this hot take again it robs the episode of the nuance that if you just mm. happen to come upon it you'd probably see some more of like okay some of this reads weirdly but that's actually an interesting point and again like i was talking about before the characters themselves working through these difficult <laughs> issues that cannot be solved in you know 20 minutes Right, and I mean, what particularly, and I don't, again, I, I mean, I, what particularly frustrates me about some readings is that, and there's a particular culture, like critical habit of criticizing shows for what they wanted the show to be, not what it is. And I think that was the case with the, the model of the Golden Girls' faces, which, you know, I pick on that just because I see it as emblematic of a larger cultural and critical problem that tends to reread things through a lens that I think is not an accurate representation. Plus they just make things up. Like they just they just completely misrepresent what happens in the show. And I mean, like, I'm like, if you're gonna be writing this then I just think that you should be honest about what's happening because otherwise you're just bending the facts to fit your conclusion rather than the other way around. Um, so with the Mixed Bestlings episode, you know, there's so much controversy surrounding it um, for all of the reasons you just said. And also because what I think is frustrating is it's about accepting an interracial relationship and a relationship that has a big age gap, which I think both of those two things are progressive. Like the message is like, you know, in Dorothy's case, she doesn't care at all that Lorraine is black. She just cares that she's old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lorraine's family has trouble with the fact that Michael is a skinny white boy. And I just think to have that, it's not progressive in 2021, obviously, but it was at the time to have the race be kind of like such a small thing that they eventually also get over because mm -hmm. of little Lamar or Roger. <laughs> yes, exactly. Lamar was a much better choice uh, for the name, by the way. Yes. Who we never hear from ever again. Um, yeah, who is that Bobby? Did they decide Bobby? You got the yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, the continuity is a whole other chapter we can Oh about. yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's funny you mentioned the housekeeper earlier. So for our episode of Enough Wicker, I feel like there is like a, a three second line of dialogue in the, you know, just like beat by beat, or I guess not three seconds, but three beats of sort of racial awareness uh, on the part of the girls as soon as Marguerite walks in the door. And I feel like that's like 90% of the episode that we talk yeah. about on Enough Wicker because 
it is like you said these characters having these realizations about the other characters who happen to be black on the show so it's, yep. it's really it's really um it's so fascinating to think about how much as we said before is relevant today yep. um <laughs> that we're still figuring this shit out it's great realizations <laughs> exactly um so i i think just as as one final question uh i would love to know um what you know what is what is some of your favorite what what are some of your favorite takes i guess either your own uh but well let's not talk about phil cuz you you talked about that already of of scholars or you know just like thinking about the golden girls and i know you've listened to some of our other episodes like sure. one of my favorite ones just as an example is not only your phil phil essay but uh dr kate brown talking about yes. rose and the failed american dream so that, that is one is just like one of those things where you're like oh my gosh i never looked at the show this way so can you talk about like either you know either that moment or other moments for you when sort of consuming other scholarship about the show yeah and i i really like that book by kate brown i think it's a great introduction to the golden girls and well i don't necessarily agree with everything that she says because you know it's just not who I am, but I do agree with you that the take on, I think that the take on Rose was probably the, the strongest part of the book for me, uh, because I think that it's easy to dismiss, I think precisely because it's so easy to dismiss Rose, because she, you know, she's the innocent one with her sweaters with teddy bears on them, which also, just a brief aside, why in the God's name is she wearing a sweater in Miami? I, I can't wrap that All the time, it's, all the there's time. so many layers. It's I, like, <laughs> what is going on? Anyway, I think that, you know, that Kate Brown brings up, you know, when Rose is unemployed many times throughout the show. In fact, she's the one who's most, next to Dorothy, she's the one who's unemployed the most. Like, she loses her job at the counseling center, then she loses Charlie's pension. And so I, I agree with you that, because that's the most, to me, the sort of most historically grounded reading. And I, I really enjoy those that sort of pinpoint how the Golden Girl specifically is engaging with the, the, the social political problems of the, and the economic problems of the 80s. You well, know, that's right. That's your historicism, right? Yep, exactly. So I agree with you that I think that's probably my favorite take. And I'll be honest with you, I don't read a lot of Golden Girl scholarship. I mean, I've, I've written about my jealous fandom, like I get very <laughs> possessive. And so I, I, my, my urge, my impulse is always like, well, I disagree with that. <laughs> so I try not to read too much of it just because I don't want to be negative. Um, but there, that, I think that Kate Brown's book is probably one of my favorites. Um, I also like Kalushi's book. I haven't read all of it, but I do appreciate the way it gives the background that you can't find in the Wikipedia page or other sort of resources. So I think that I appreciate that kind of, uh, written resource because I think that that kind of history gets lost a lot of times and so yeah. I think that it's really helpful to have that so we understand as you point out in one of your early episodes like that one director who does the weird camera work in yeah. uh, the burglary <laughs> episode and the weird like weird aesthetics of the parking garage which I still don't understand but I think that understanding <laughs> the yeah yeah it's just like so I think that uh, those kinds of things are really helpful to give our readings that you know you and it, you get that you two and, and myself and others do the kind of richness and texture that it needs and so i, I appreciate the kind of things that those kinds of works as well absolutely so what would you um what would you say to you know somebody who hasn't watched the golden girls my god go out and watch. Get a life. <laughs> yeah get a life <laughs> <laughs> it's like i do think that because it's you know it is a 
and has become acknowledged now as a sort of pivotal piece of 80s and early 90s television. So I think that for that reason alone, it should be, and it's a template that has been mimicked many times subsequently, um, Sex in the City, Hot in Cleveland, which is basically just warmed over, Golden Girls. And so I think that, you know, to understand where these things come from, you have to understand their origins. And I'm not saying that Golden Girls like invented the foursome, but it is probably the most sort of archetypal one. And I do think that now that it's experiencing a resurgence, it's important to watch it to sort of be part of the conversation. And, but most importantly, it's just damn good storytelling. Like it's just one of the most feel good things you can imagine. Uh, it's, it's, it's really healthy television. Like it's not just junk. It's not, it's not like broccoli, like, I don't know, whatever new premium cable drama is on, but it's, you know, it's something that's meaningful and rich and helps you be a better human in the way that the best sitcoms do. I love that. That's a perfect endorsement. Susan Harris would be proud if she's listening yeah. to us. Oh, I hope she is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, TJ. This has been really amazing. And I want everybody out there listening to definitely follow you on Twitter. So you're at TJ West number three, right? That's three correct. at the end. And also um, Medium. We've been re you know referencing all of your amazing articles about the Golden Girls, but also just other uh, media, including the Birdcage and the Nanny, which by yep. the way, I'm so pumped about. Uh, TJWest3.medium.com. And I understand you're also the host of a podcast, Queens of the Bees. Can I'm a co-host. I have a co-host. A co-host. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I always say I'm the host of, <laughs> yeah, I'm a host of a podcast. I don't know why Lauren's here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, please, everybody check out uh, TJ's work. Um, we are so thrilled to have you here and to look forward to more amazing uh, takes uh, on the Golden Girls and beyond. Yes, and it, it was truly an honor and a pleasure to be here. As Jose, or um, as uh, what's his name says, it's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I think that uh, to, to just sort of give a call back to one of my favorite episodes from the first season. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. I, like I said, it was a lot of fun to be here. Take care, everybody. <laughs>